Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Appreciate it. Let me get my bearings here. You've heard of a statement, deer in the headlights. Well, that's exactly what I feel like right now. A dean in the headlights here. All right, I'm checking my watch. I know what, when I need to be done. Well, again, uh, my name is Justin. Thank you so much for having me. It is my absolute joy and pleasure to bring to you the word of God and to preach to you the word of God this morning. Um, what I want to do uh, we, Corey read that scripture. It's a pretty familiar scripture, but I want to talk about the concept that we call gospel renewal. In a lot of ways, it is the organizing principle of your church. I don't know if you use that language very often, but it's, the, it's, it's why we do what we do at Heights and why we do what we do at Sacred City Church. We believe that the gospel is the central element to the Christian life And it continuously brings renewal and change. Continuously brings renewal and change, both in our lives and in our church and in our communities. What this means for us is that all of our problems in life, all of our problems in the church and all of our problems in the culture stem from a lack of proper orientation to the gospel. So we're going to answer two big questions today. And this is, listen, I don't think I'm like, you know, I'm, le- I'm lessening your understanding because we're going back to basics. This is something we have to do all the time. We're gospel-centered, and I'm still going to say, what is the gospel? I'm still going to ask that question because we forget it. We move away from it. It gets fuzzy in our mind, and when the gospel gets fuzzy, our affections for Jesus get fuzzy. So that's what we're going to do. We are putting the cookies on the bottom shelf this morning, but we all need them on the bottom shelf. All right. So the two questions I want to answer, one, what is the gospel? And two, how does it actually change us, our church and our world? Okay. Those are two questions I want to try to answer today. To answer those questions, of course, we're going to the word of God. So you can open up to Romans chapter one. We're going to look at verses 16 and 17. Let me go ahead and read verse 16 for us. It's the apostle Paul under inspiration by the Holy Spirit. God himself is writing this through the apostle Paul, and this is what it says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, the first question we should ask is, what is the gospel, and why would Paul be tempted to be ashamed of it? Well, the word gospel is evangelion in the Greek, and it means good news. Now, it's important that we notice right away, and you probably hear this often, that it's good news, not good advice. In Paul's day and age, when an evangelion went, took place, it was an announcement. It was a herald coming from another town and saying something like, the king has had a son. Or the king has been inaugurated. It was an event that had happened. It was not, here's what you need to do, right? 
It was an announcement of something that had happened. The war is over. Woohoo! Everybody's excited, right? That's good news. Good advice is a commercial, right? When they say the war is over, we erupt. When, they get, when we watch a commercial, we're like, again? I know advice. Oh, I should eat healthy? Thanks. Didn't know that, right? We don't rejoice over good advice. We rejoice over good news. It was a notice that something good had happened, not advice on what a person should do. So when Paul uses the word gospel here, he uses it in reference to the historical event, the historical reality of what Jesus Christ accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. You can see that laid out when he writes 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed that this guy... This Jewish man who taught and healed and cast out demons and rebuked the Pharisees and then gets publicly condemned and crucified as a heretic. That guy, I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed of that guy. Why? Now, first off, we got to know who Paul was. Paul was an intellectual of the highest class of his day, educated in the best schools. So, in that regards, Paul had a lot to be ashamed of. A publicly condemned Jewish blasphemer who claimed to be the son of God was crucified on Golgotha's hill in plain sight like a murderer. And the gospel says that that same Jesus has been resurrected to new life to never die again, has been glorified and exalted to the right hand of God where he and he only offer salvation to anyone he chooses to or anyone the Father has given him. So Paul has a lot of reasons to be ashamed of the gospel. He wasn't a backwoods hillbilly. He was intellectual. He knew exactly, people don't just get up out of the grave. And guess what? You can't just claim to be the son of God. These things didn't make logical sense to him. So how can Paul here in Romans 1 say, I'm not ashamed of that? <laughs> Very simple. Very simple. I mean, first off, can we get some background? Paul was persecuting the Christian church. He hated Jesus and hated his followers. He, wanted, he felt like he was on a mission from God to snuff them out on the face of the earth, on a mission, and guess what happens? Oh, man, how God likes to wreck our plans. God says, you're changing teams today, bro. God shows up and says, I am him. He says, who are you? I am Jesus Christ, whom you've been persecuting. Paul says, uh-oh. All my learning, all my education, it's all been wrong. You are the son of God, Jesus Christ. How, did Paul, how is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because the resurrected Jesus Christ knocked him off of his horse, showed up to him and 500 other people, proved his resurrection was real and was true, and Paul said, oh. And then Jesus says, and now I'm going to show you how much you have to suffer for my name. Paul says, all right, here we go. Let's go. Right? That reality is what converted Paul from an antichrist to a pro-Jesus disciple who was willing to be beaten, jailed, and killed for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul recognized the fact that this 
truth doesn't fit neatly into his mental categories and it might get him laughed out of the halls of power in his society in the future. His old friends might not like him anymore. He used to get invited to that party. He might not get invited to that party anymore because now he's a zealot. Now he's, you know, he doesn't make rational sense. But that doesn't change the fact that it is true. Jesus Christ got up from the grave. It was a miracle. It was a supernatural act of God. And therefore, it doesn't fit neatly into our minds. And this is why we need the Holy Spirit to help us understand it and believe it. So the first thing I want us to see is the good news, the gospel, is the good news of Jesus. What Jesus has accomplished that's meant to be told. Okay, That's what the the gospel is. The good news of what Jesus has accomplished that needs to be told. The next thing I want us to see... So that's the historical reality of the gospel. That's the, co- the gospel content, we could say. But there's something else here in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the next thing we see here is the gospel is not just content, It's not just news, it's also power. It's a power to be experienced. The Greek word translated power here is dynamis. It's where we get the word dynamite from. The gospel is a power that radically transforms everything it touches. Dynamite transforms things. We learn this every 4th of July. Somebody... Somebody holds that thing a little too long, and it transforms that hand, right? Now, this is where we need some clarity. Many people treat the gospel like a tool that enables them to do something that maybe they couldn't do before. Maybe feel better about ourselves. Maybe get that girl or get that guy or get a better life or get a better job. It's, it's like a pulley. If you know anything about a pulley, a pulley enables someone to lift something they couldn't on their own. So the thought goes, well, I'm a pretty good dude. I'm a pretty good person. I've been living my life the, the best way that I know how, making the best choices that I know how. God, if he's up there, he knows my heart. I don't have a problem with him. He probably doesn't have a problem with me. There's no real issue between us. My greatest problem in life isn't a need to be reconciled as a sinner to a holy God. My real problem is I just need a little help to get over some of these these insecurities I've got. In comes the gospel as a pulley. The gospel helps me feel a little better about myself and helps me lift something I couldn't lift before. Maybe it helps me beat an addiction. But here's where we need to see the problem. The pulley has no power in itself. And therefore, it is drastically limited by our own strength and ability. All of the power when using a pulley is still in me. The pulley helps me accomplish accomplish some things and improve my life, but it hasn't radically changed me from the inside out. The gospel isn't a pulley meant to help you lift a few things that you couldn't lift before. 
The gospel is the dynamic power of God that changes you from the inside out and lifts you up and turns you into a new person completely from, literally from the inside out. It gives you a brand new spiritual life that you didn't have before when it explodes in your heart. The gospel is the power, he says, for salvation from beginning to end that can change you, that can change your church, and that can change our world. So how? How does the gospel change us from the inside out? Now, I'm going to use a word that we all use, and it's going to be like the, the, the Sunday school answer that everybody in here could probably have. The how the gospel changes us is when it gets inside of us is when we come to understand the grace of God. That's it. We have to come to understand and trust the grace of God. Look at verse 17. For in it, that's the gospel, for in the gospel, big term right here, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's uncovered. Look, from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, the question we need to ask here is, what does Paul mean when he says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel? Well, Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest in the 15th and 16th century, when he read that text, when he saw the words righteousness of God, he feared for his life. He thought it meant the holiness of God, the moral perfection of God. Right, And so he knew if God is ultimately righteous and God is ultimately holy and there is no darkness in him at all, guess what? If I ask God to, to rid the world of sin and rid the world of darkness, I'm in a bad place here because I'm actually saying, God, come get me. And so Martin Luther was troubled by this. He was already a priest at this time, and he was troubled in his conscience, and he couldn't find hope and solace. And so he starts studying this exact text. Over 500 years ago, he's studying this exact text, and he realizes that the righteousness of God isn't referring to God's own holiness, but something that God could work on us or work into us. He said this, literally Luther, Luther's words. He says, when he realized that he wasn't just speaking of God's righteousness nor a person's righteousness that could earn by doing good's work, good works, rather it was a righteousness that God could credit to someone. A righteousness that is a gift from a righteous God. And so Luther said, whoa, you mean the righteousness by which I will be saved is not mine? He called it an alien righteousness, a righteousness that belongs to someone else but could be given to another. So namely, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfect life that Jesus Christ lived, could be given, could be credited to our, our account when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And Luther said, quote, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. It was this moment that eventually led to the Protestant Reformation, that the gospel changed Martin Luther, the gospel changed the church, the gospel church changed the Western culture as a whole. Paul tells us here 
that the gift of Jesus's perfect righteousness comes to us, look, through faith, and faith itself, Ephesians tells us, is a gift from God so that none of us can boast. Now, I just want you to think about this for a second. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Think about the type of power it takes to take a spiritually dead person and make them spiritually alive. Think about the type of power it takes to take, turn a sinner into a saint. Think about the type of power it takes to turn an unrighteous person into a righteous person. That is the dynamite power that exists in the gospel. We're not talking about a power that can put you up just a little bit. We're not talking about a pulley that can help you lift some hard things. We're talking a power that can radically transform you from the inside out and give you a totally new power for living the rest of your life. That is the gospel power that saves us. But Paul tells us of one other power in the gospel. And that's in Colossians chapter one. I don't have time to, for you to go there, but I'm just gonna read it. It's in verses five and six. It says this, of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, the gospel that has come to you, that's the message that we heard. Look, listen to this. As indeed in the whole world, here it is, look, it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it, here it is, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So he's saying the gospel came to you, but guess what? As you're hearing it as at, and as you're understanding it, that gospel is spreading and that gospel is still bearing fruit in your life and in your church. He's using an organic metaphor. Think of a seed. Think of an oak tree, an oak seed or a seed that's planted in the ground that continuously grows up into an oak tree. Think about the power that lies in that seed. That little unassuming seed has the ability, when planted, to not only grow and mature into a massive oak tree that can literally push a house off its foundation. Also, latent in that seed is the ability to multiply and spread oak trees all over the face of the earth. All of that world-transforming power lies in one seed. Paul says the gospel has power like that. Here's what Paul's saying. When you hear and believe the gospel, it changes you. It not only saves you from your sins and delivers you from the wrath of God, it also grows you. It matures you. It begins to organically change you from your heart out. In other words, salvation isn't just about being forgiven and going to heaven when we die. Salvation also changes who we are, what we love, and how we live our lives today. Paul says, the gospel is the power to make you more like Jesus, more humble, more gracious, more kind, more bold, more generous, more hospitable, more forgiving. You can learn to be a truth speaker without being brash. You can learn to be radically welcoming and inclusive without sacrificing truth. The gospel empowers us to resist sin and new, live new lives for King Jesus. The gospel is the power of God that declares us righteous while simultaneously working in us 
making us righteous. This is important for us today because many Christians have been taught that the gospel is only for outsiders and unbelievers. That once you become a Christian, you move on from the gospel and you begin to try to follow Jesus through your own hard work. Everything comes back. Did you have a quiet time today, brother? Yeah. Did you pray? Try harder tomorrow. I want us to see from our text here that simply isn't the way we grow as Christians. Believing the gospel isn't something we do once. It's something we must do every single day, every moment of every day. It's from faith for faith. This is how we come to faith, and this is how we grow in faith. We never move on from the gospel. We're to live by faith in the gospel every moment of every day. Now, I want you to see the radical nature of what I just said. This puts every single one of us in here and every single one of them out there with the same basic needs this morning. No matter where you are in your life, no matter what you're struggling with, your most basic need this morning is to believe and apply the gospel. If you've never put your faith in Jesus and you're struggling to find yourself, you're struggling to manage the the guilt that you feel and you need hope, You need meaning and purpose in a world that is lacking, in a world that is broken. You can find that here in the gospel. God can be your father. God loves you and Jesus died to rectify your broken relationship with God and to give you power to live your life in a radically new way. And he, on top of that, he guarantees you an eternity of never-ending love. If you believe that, today is the day of your salvation and that new life begins right now. If you've been a Christian for 80 years, the call for you today is also to believe the gospel. Don't base your righteousness, your standing before God, on your Bible knowledge or your church attendance or your giving or your morality or even your affections, your love for God. When you do that, and we, it's such a natural thing, we slip out of believing the gospel and trusting in Christ's perfect righteousness. And we start looking at ourselves and checking our lists and checking them twice, right? Going over them. How much sin did I do today? And do you think God is like kind of mad at me today? Or is he kind of happy with me today? Or he's a little frustrated? He's looking down at me going like, ugh, close, but not quite. This, when we do that, when we start looking inward to check our spiritual temperature all the time, we become cold, spiritually cold. We become religious. We become full of spiritual pride. So our hope for those of us who've been following Jesus for a long time, once again, we need to look to Jesus as our perfect righteousness this morning. He is our only hope. He is the reason the Father is happy with us. He's the reason we're adopted into the family. He's the reason we're forgiven. He's the reason we have the blessings that we have. It's not because we pulled ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and we're smarter than the rest of the world and we just read the Bible and do it. They did it. It'd go well for them too. No. We are who we are because God is gracious to us. He's turned the spiritual lights on for us. He's given us mercy and kindness in Christ. Now, if you are struggling to change 
in some area of your life, as we all are. You don't need, I hate to say this, most of the time, your, your answer's not going to be found in that next book that your pastor recommends. And I recommend a lot of books, okay? It's not. More than likely, your answer is found in the gospel. And taking that gospel deeper into your heart, to the, a place of need. Now, here, here's the analogy. Every summer, my family and I travel out to Colorado to spend some time out there with some other family. And if you've ever been out there, you've probably driven through some of the most amazing tunnels in the United States. All my kids, they're like, oh, and then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, this is kind of scary. Like, you, like you're going miles under the mountain here. Like, it's, it's pretty crazy. Now, every time I drive through these things, I think, who built this? And how did they... Men, men, right? Men are like, let's just go through it. <laughs> and you're like, it's a mountain, dude. You're not, you're not digging through a mountain, right? You don't dig through a mountain. But if you've ever watched any of these shows where they go through, they teach about how to take the railroad through there and they, they teach about how to get through them. What happens is they, they drill in very specific spots, right? They drill down and then they drop in uh, dynamite and they bring about a controlled explosion, right? A controlled explosion, and then they pull all that rubble out. Now, this is interesting because you can't just take a stick of dynamite and throw it at the mountain. Boom. It's not going to do anything. It might blow something up on the surface, but it's actually, you're never going to get through the mountain by doing that, right? What you have to do is go down into the mountain, and then slide that dynamite down under the surface in exactly the right places, and then when the fuse is lit, it brings a controlled strike, a subterranean explosion that begins to create a new pathway through the mountain. Now, the same is true for the gospel. The gospel is the dynamite. The problem is most people only have a surface-level comprehension of the gospel. You ask my Six-year-old, what's the gospel? Jesus died for my sins. That's right, baby, it is. That is the gospel. But that's the surface-level explanation of the gospel. That's like throwing the dynamite to the top of the mountain or to the outside of the mountain, and it brings about an explosion. They don't understand that the gospel is multifaceted, multidimensional. It needs to be understand, quoted, quote, in all its truth. So the gospel stays on the surface of our lives and never really produces deep change. If your understanding of the gospel is only Jesus died for my sins, Jesus loves me. That's, it's true, but it's surface level. It's not going to get into the deep places that need to be changed in your life. And all of us, like I said, we all have these areas that we're struggling to change. Think of them as our mountains, right, that, that, that we're, we're dealing with. Negative forms of behavior that have taken years, a lifetime to develop, and they seem overwhelming to us. That nagging anxiety, that flashing anger, that overwhelming fear. And if we're honest, when we look at those mountains, we don't even know where to change them. And most of the time, we're not thinking, let's just go through it. Let's just get to the heart. Think about this. Why 
Are you so controlling? Why are you so fearful? Why are you incapable of making commitments and keeping them? Your favorite button on Facebook is maybe. Which basically says, if I don't have anything better to do that night, I'll maybe come to that. Why do you get so angry and bitter when someone criticizes your work? Why are you so sheepish about sharing your faith? These are all things that need a controlled strike from the gospel. We've got to drill down into our hearts and light the gospel fuse by faith. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus tells us that lust is a sin. He calls it adultery of the heart. Lust ranges from simple annoyance like pop-ups on websites or the commercials or whatever things that just you can't get out, you can't not see, all the way to some of the most egregious forms of sin imaginable. Lust is a spectrum like that. So most of us have to deal in some way with the sin of lust. So how do we do that? How do we deal with lust. Well, a surface level approach would say, Jesus died for your sins, quit it. <laughs> right? Well, that's true. It's not very helpful. The reality is, this is here. We've got to go deep. We've got to go down. We've got to go through the mountain. We all lust for different reasons. Some people lust and look at pornography because they're lonely. It's their way of dealing with their loneliness. Others because they're anxious. Others because they like the sense of control they feel. Others because they're deeply insecure and pornography is the one place where they feel wanted even though it's, all mo it's momentary and all a lie. Some people look at porn because they're lazy. Pleasing a woman in real life is hard work. And porn seeks, seeks to gain the pleasure of satisfying a woman without actually satisfying a woman. Each one of these underlying motivations for lust are different. And therefore, they need a different controlled strike from the gospel. You could call this there's the sin under the sin. So there's the surface level sin, the sin that we see, lust. And then there's the sin under that that's driving that sin. Let's say, after I talk with my pastor or I talk with my missional community, or I just pray and I'm seeking God and I'm trying to get to the bottom of this, I'm trying to go through the mountain, that I realize, you know what, I think this pornography thing, this lust thing is actually about control. My life feels out of control. I have a bad day at work. I have a bad day with the kids. I have a bad day with my wife. And when I get a real sense of the fact that I'm out of control, I look at pornography. What does the gospel say to me? How do I drill down into that? One, first the gospel tells us, you're right. This is the myth of American society that somehow we can get control of our life. 
It's all a lie. You are not in control at all. If you, <laughs> things that we can't see have been controlling our life for two years, right? We didn't, none of us planned on that way back. We are not in control. God is. God is absolutely sovereign. The myth that I can control my life is the belief that leads to excess anxiety, excess depression. Believing the lie that I can control my life will only create more anxiety. Rather, the gospel reminds me, I'm not God, he is. And the God who knows all and is all-powerful is an absolute control. He's standing. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is standing in the control room of the universe right now, working all things for my spiritual good. So I can trust whatever this difficulty is, it was sent by God for my spiritual good. And these negative feelings that I'm feeling in the moment, this feeling of being out of control is actually a gracious gift by God to remind me of my need and push me to the feet of Jesus Christ and beg for mercy in this moment. Spiritual growth looks like more dependence upon Jesus in the Christian life, not more independence from him. See, physical growth in a family looks like independence from your family, not so in the Christian life. Spiritual maturity looks like more and more realization of how dependent I am on Jesus Christ day in, day, day in and day out. So when I do that, what I actually might find out, and this would really shock me, is that my control issue and my porn issue is actually a pride issue. That I think I know exactly how my life should go. And I'm mad that God has been getting it wrong. That's what I'm actually doing. If I can really get quiet and really get alone with God, I could say, God, I'm mad at you because my life isn't going the way that I want it to. I'm not in the town I want to be in. I don't have the job that I want to be in. I don't have the spouse that I want. I'm not even the person I want to be, and I'm mad at you. And the only thing I might think I can control in my life is what I view on my phone. That realization, drilling down into there, should be a moment where you go, oh, what am I doing? And it lead, should lead us to the feet of Jesus, and it should lead us to repentance. Father, I confess my pride. I think I know how my life should go, and you aren't doing what I want you to do. When, and then I go back to the cross, and I look at the cross, and I realize, what am I doing? Of course I can trust you. You put all my sin on your son, and you crucified him there to save me from my sins. If you did that for me, how can I not trust you with every other aspect of my life? When I go back to the cross, I realize that I can trust you, Father. That you know how to bring blessing out of curses, light out of darkness, and life out of death. Father, I'm proud. Please help me believe the gospel even now. Help me trust you even now.
Do you know how to, to do that? Do you know how to live every day by faith in the gospel like that? Taking that gospel to deep places in your heart. If not, that's why you need a missional community. That's why you need brothers and sisters, because guess what? Here's the thing about the way God made us. We're, we don't see our own sin very well, but we see other people's pretty well. So they can go, oh yeah, that's a pride issue, bro. I've been waiting for you to bring that up, because actually your wife called me last night. She said, she really hoped that I could bring it up this morning. So praise the Lord that the Spirit's working. You need people to help you do that. Let me pray for us this morning. I'm out of time. So let me pray for us this morning and ask the spirit to even work in us right now. Father God, I thank you for your grace in the gospel that we're not saved or sanctified or made right or glorified or get to heaven by our own works, but only by the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. Jesus, thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection, and thank you for the power that you've placed inside of us in the gospel I pray that you would help us believe it and experience that power every day and that you would explode it out and change this city with it, Father. I pray that you would do it for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.